All right, let's turn once again in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. In Mark's introduction to his Gospel, Jesus Christ is twice proclaimed to be the Son of God. In verse 1, our author mentions this, and then down in verse 11, God the Father himself declares that Jesus is his unique Son, his one-of-a-kind son, and if he is God's unique son, then he is also the unique servant of God prophesied in the Old Testament. And as such, he has the authority of God standing behind his earthly ministry. The first eight chapters of Mark show many instances of that authority being demonstrated. Uh, Jesus shows his authority in preaching and teaching, in casting out demons, in healing the sick, in performing miracles. His authority extends over nature, his disciples, and even his enemies. The issue of authority is an important one because it stands at the center of who has the right to rule. The right of authority is being challenged everywhere in our country today, From the legitimacy of our political elections to the Supreme Court, from the making of laws to the execution of those laws and the judging of those laws, from the classroom to the living room, the concept of authority is being questioned. And the reason is, the problem is, that which underlies this is that every person, every human being born into this world has a fallen nature that wants to be in charge, that wants authority over itself. And our underlying authority, being self, uh, turning away from God without his divine intervention, our natural inclination to rule ourselves will eventually ruin us and it will put us into conflict with other authorities God is placed in the world. Now, when Jesus entered his public ministry, it was paramount that he immediately demonstrate his authority. Only that way would people listen to him and have the opportunity to respond to his message. That authority is indicated in Christ's initial proclamation here of his ministry in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and then it's demonstrated in his teaching and healing in the rest of the chapter. Now, right from the very start, we are invited by him to put our faith and trust in the gospel of the kingdom and submit our lives to the authority of the Lord Jesus as one of his disciples. So how will we respond to that? Will we bow the knee to his authority or will we continue to submit to our own? Let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for the truth of your word. We're thankful that we have these accounts of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a real person, from whose time the whole world uh, is divided into time. And so, Lord, as we look to these um, works of the Lord Jesus that display his authority, help us as your people to be sure that we're putting ourselves under that authority, 
that we're not ruling ourselves, that we are not uh, selfish, but we are submitting to uh, his reign in our lives. Bless us as we continue in Jesus' name now. Amen. The first thing that I want to show you here that indicates the Lord Jesus' authority is that proclamation in verses 14 and 15. And he makes a proclamation that uh, indicates fulfillment of prophecy. In his coming, the kingdom of, of God draws near. It actually arrives in its initial stage. As God's unique son, he has the authority to proclaim the kingdom and invite people to enter it. So we have the setting here in verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee. All right, the time is probably at the end or close to it of the first year of Christ's ministry, which was in Judea and back and forth a little bit from Galilee. And this occurs sometime after John has identified Jesus as the coming one who would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He also called the Lord Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John's ministry has drawn to a close somewhere during that first year of Christ's ministry. And this period is called the year of obscurity because we know very little about it. And the only gospel writer that mentions anything or gives an indication of it is uh, the apostle John. Now, Mark does not explain the circumstances of John's arrest until chapter 6. And his ministry has been decreasing over this period of time, and Jesus' ministry has been increasing as John prophesied. Now, the term that Mark uses for his arrest here literally means delivered over. So he's delivered over to the authorities, and those authorities eventually would take his life. And what's interesting is that this is the same verb that Mark uses to describe Jesus later on being delivered over to Pilate, and we know that he also was executed. So Mark may be hinting here at a similarity between these two events, suggesting Christ's arrest and crucifixion. Now, let's take a look here at the substance of this proclamation. The Lord Jesus came to the region of Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. This word for preach means to announce or to proclaim as a herald. It's the same word used of John as he preached the baptism of repentance. Uh, Jesus now then is heralding or announcing the gospel of God. And of course, we've conveyed what that means. It's the good news of salvation associated with Christ's coming that will conclude with his death, resurrection, and ascension. And that's what made it possible for us to be saved from sin. Now, the proclamation is brief. It only contains three points that are not elaborated on, but let's elaborate on them a little bit this morning. Jesus uh, first says, that the time is fulfilled. 
Now, he's talking, not talking about time really in a chronological sense there. He's referring to time, meaning something that's favorable, an opportune time, or a significant time, or just the right time. So the prophecies of old, the preparation of John the Baptist, have been completed now, and it's time, the exact right time, for the Messiah to come on the scene. So what does this concern? Well, as Jesus begins to preach the gospel, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's preaching about the kingdom of God, a phrase that Mark uses 14 times, and it involves three concepts. First of all, a kingdom has to have a king, somebody that rules over it. So the kingdom involves the revelation of a person who's going to rule that kingdom. A kingdom also has to have subjects. It has to be have a community of people over whom the king rules. And then the idea of a kingdom also involves the idea of reigning, ruling with authority, the actual administration of government. So you have one person who is ruling others and they're submitting to his authority as he governs them. Now God's kingdom has numerous facets. It is both present and future. It is both invisible and visible. It is spiritual and it is material. Now it was at Uh, hand at Christ's arrival. In other words, the new age was dawning, the new era of God's grace ruling in the hearts of men. The kingdom of God reigns now in his church. Now the church is visible in a sense. Uh, There are churches dotted all over the place in the whole world, and people know that's where, where others go to worship God. So the church there is visible but it's not necessarily representing the true church of God where people have confessed their sin and turned to the Lord Jesus as their Savior. So there is a sense in which it's visible, but its true body is not visible. And its true authority is not really ruling in the world today as it once will when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So the kingdom uh, of God is ruling in his people, it's ruling uh, in his church, and it's got these different aspects involved in it, and one day the Lord Jesus as king will return, and he will uh, return in power and great glory and set up his earthly kingdom that will be visible. Now the invitation to the kingdom is then given. Jesus adds, repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news again of salvation concerning Christ as the Messiah and become a member of his kingdom. One must repent of sin and turn to Christ. And we've mentioned before that this is kind of like uh, the flip sides of a coin. You have one coin, but on one side you have one image, on the other side you have another image. And the the flip side of the coin of salvation is repentance and faith. We repent when we change our mind about our condition. 
when we accept the truth that we are sinful people and we can't do anything about it. And we're willing to turn away from that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to believe in something means that you not only believe it, but you conform to it, and you conform to this by trusting the Lord Jesus as your Savior. So you turn from your uh, your own way, your own authority, and you turn yourself to the gospel of Christ, trusting him to be your new authority as your Savior. So as the kingdom, as the king of the kingdom, Jesus invites us right from the very first words of his preaching to repent and believe in him who is the gospel. And those who do so become members of his eternal kingdom. Now, the rest of this passage is a demonstration of the servant's authority. His proclamation is authoritative because of who he is. And now we have uh, three demonstrations of his authority. And this all takes place in the course of one day in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look, first of all, at verses 16 to 20, where we see uh, his authority demonstrated in the calling of his disciples. He first calls Peter and Andrew. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. All right. Uh, These men were located at the Sea of Galilee, actually a, a large lake measured about 12 by 28 miles. And it was a prominent business, uh, a prominent business there was the business of fishing. And it's interesting that the Son of God did not call the rich and the famous and the powerful, but ordinary people to enter into service with him, share his ministry. Now, these first two men that he met were already acquainted with Jesus, according to John's gospel. Uh, They had been in Judea when they first met him. Andrew was among the first to follow Jesus, and he formerly had been a disciple of John the Baptist. And he's the one who came to Peter and told him, we found him who is the Messiah, and he named him Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus officially calls them at this time to follow him on a more regular basis. And they're probably on the shore of the lake. They have their fishing nets and uh, they've waded into the waters and they take those nets, they throw them in and they slowly draw them back and they try to draw fish in, uh, of course, to uh, meet their needs and uh, sell at the local market. So as Jesus watches them, he approaches them and he calls out to them, uh, follow me. Now here, uh, his address to them is just very simple, but it's interesting. Uh, Those words, that verb, means uh, 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 it's really a call to be attached to a person. It's uh, a call that... uh, 
is a surrender to that person to, to come under their authority and to follow them. So that's what discipleship is really all about. It's looking to the Lord Jesus. At that time, the idea of being their savior had not come upon them, but they knew he was a teacher. Uh, they believed that he was the Messiah, and so they're going to follow him. They're going to come under his authority, under his teaching, under his ministry. Now, Jesus indicates what their ministry is going to be with just a few words. Their profession is to catch fish. And now he says, if you follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of people, fishers of men. Now, these men at that time did not use hooks and bait like we do today. They used those nets to draw the fish in. And it was strenuous work They would go out in the late evening. They would spend their time all night trying to fill their boat up with fish. It was strenuous work. It required patience. It required skill. So fishing for men is going to involve the same types of thing. It's going to involve time. It's going to involve endurance. It's going to involve patience. And it's going to involve spiritual skill that they would learn from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, their response to this is immediate. Again, we see that word repeated so often by Mark. When things happen, they happen right away. There's no saying, well, uh, we've got to go home and say goodbye to the family. Uh, We've got to finish the day's work and collect our money so we'll have something to take with us. No, they immediately left their nets and they followed him. They're breaking with their primary occupation in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this would have been a great step of faith. We're going to learn a little bit later that Peter was married. Likely, Andrew was married. I wouldn't be surprised if they had some children. So how are they going to support their family if they follow this man? Uh, How are they going to take care of them? Well, at this point in time, it may not have been full-time where they were with Christ every single day, but as time progressed, they would be. And so they would have to trust God completely for the needs of their family and uh, leaving their profession behind. Now, as Jesus uh, with these two men go a little bit down the the shoreline uh, farther, we find that he finds two other people there in verse 19. When he'd gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. Now this John is the author of the Gospel of John, and uh, these two men are also involved in the business of fishing. It's very likely that all four of these men were in business together. And uh, he finds them in their fishing boat. They're cleaning and mending their nets to be prepared for the next time they go out. And uh, Zebedee is their father. Zebedee was probably successful in this business because he was able Uh, to have hired servants, as the next verse says. So 
we would be thinking, okay, these young men are already working with their father. When their father passes away, they likely would inherit the business and they would be carrying it on. So here again, we have that idea of leaving a profession, leaving a successful profession. And Jesus comes to these men and he calls them as well. Uh, He immediately called them, verse 20, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they went after him as well. So here we have the idea again, uh, even more clearly, that to leave his, uh, their father Zebedee is to leave their part of the profession, but also to leave their father, their family. So the idea coming out here is the importance of the disciple being willing to de- be detached from profession as well as family to follow the Lord and do the Lord's will. Now, this doesn't mean that every person who is saved is supposed to leave their family and go into full-time Christian ministry, so to speak. Uh, But what it does mean is that uh, the most important person in your life, more important than your profession, more important than your family, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you ought to serve him uh, foremost in your life, whatever he has called you to do. And of course, those who are called to be perhaps a missionary, a pastor, something of that nature, well, they often will have to leave their family. They will be going into a a profession where they're depending upon the church uh, or the Lord to uh, uh, provide their needs. And often they will be called to another state, maybe even another country, and they'll have to leave their family behind. And the only person who commands this kind of authority over us is Jesus because he laid down his life in order that we might be saved from sin, death, and hell. So it's important that we see his authority over those whom he calls. They are to obey that authority as they walk with him. Now, we come to verses 21 and 22, and we see authority demonstrated here as well in his teaching. Beginning at verse 21, all the way down through verse 38, uh, we, we find a typical day in the life of the Lord Jesus. It was a Sabbath day, the day of worship, in which Jesus taught. He cast out a demon. He healed numerous people. And then the next morning, He communed with his heavenly father very early in the day. So let's take a look at the first scene here, teaching in the local synagogue, verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. All right, Capernaum was a town located on the northwest side of Lake Galilee. It's projected that uh, up to 10,000 people may have lived there. It had a Roman army outpost. It had a toll gate on the uh, trade route that passed through there. And it was also the home of Peter. And this town actually became the center of operations for Jesus' Uh, Galilean ministry. 
The synagogue was the place where Jewish people would gather on their day of worship, which was the Sabbath day, Saturday at that time. And the people who gathered would worship the Lord by praying, uh, singing psalms, and listening to the teachings of the local uh, rabbi, the local scribe, uh, who may well have been a Pharisee. Jesus came to the synagogue this particular Sunday, and he uh, taught there. Now, you couldn't just go into this place and begin preaching. You actually had to be invited to do so by the local elders. So that suggests to us that if Jesus was preaching there, uh, he was well known in the region and he had been invited to do so because people wanted to hear what he had to say. And Mark does not really tell us what Jesus taught. As a matter of fact, uh, Mark has the fewest discourses of Jesus in all the Gospels, but what he does focus on is the people's response to this teaching. We're told here that they were astonished. They were amazed. And that is a very strong term. Uh, It actually uh, is used of uh, receiving a blow that could knock you senseless. So you can understand the impact of his teaching was was huge. It was sizable as uh, these folks were just kind of like knocked back by the way he taught. Now, why did his teaching affect them in this way? Well, we're told in the passage is because it was one of authority. His authority was palpable. Now, these other men had a certain amount of authority because they were actually teaching the Old Testament word of God. But they weren't really teaching so that authority had an impact upon the people. They would talk about picky little things in the law and they would add laws to the law and add laws to the law that were added to the law. And they, uh, they would quote other teachers and other rabbis and they would speak very long and it would be dull and it would be boring and I would imagine people were falling asleep. But when Jesus came there and he began to preach, everybody woke up because he taught them the heart of God's law. He made it interesting, he made it real, he made it applicable, and they were just astonished by it. And so his authority was quite apparent to the people, moving them uh, to recognize it and show them there's a great deal of difference between this man and his preaching and uh, the ordinary scribes and Pharisees and rabbis. So the Lord Jesus has a very powerful impact upon the people through teaching in this way. Now we're living 2,000 years from that point in time. And the word of God is no less powerful, no less authoritative now than it was then. And remember that uh, this is what we're preaching this morning. It is not a man's word. It is God's word. And remember that when Jesus taught, he didn't have the New Testament. He was really making the New Testament by his life and ministry. And so his teaching was from the Old Testament, 
And that was so authoritative, it was stunning the people who listened to him. So we have to realize that as someone preaches God's word today, in its truth, that it's authoritative. And that person has the authority, not of his, his own, but the authority of God who is behind that teaching and that preaching. And so we ought to listen to it just as closely as those people did in Jesus' ministry. Now, something else happened that day, though, that probably really woke up the congregation and amazed them further, and that was Christ demonstrating his authority over the spirit realm. So we see here in the last section that we read, his authority demonstrated over demons. Now, last time we touched on the temptations of Christ. We know that Christ conquered Satan, the prince of demons. So it's no wonder as he begins his ministry, Satan is still going to try to oppose him and control people and possess them, and Jesus will have power to cast these evil spirits out. And so one of the first things that Mark mentions as far as a miracle is this casting out of an evil spirit. And uh, apparently a man's in the congregation that day, and we kind of wonder uh, why this is so, but there's a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. A demon, an evil spirit is controlling him. And sometime during that service, maybe he interrupts what Jesus is talking about. He cries out. That means he cries out with a really loud voice so that everybody would have to pay attention. And he says, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So imagine if somebody came into our congregation one morning and they stand up and start screaming like a wild man these, these things about the Lord Jesus and you know he's not in his right mind. It would just be stunning. It would be amazing. If we'd been sleeping, we would have woke up real quick. So that's what's going on here as this happening. Uh, he cries out, let us alone. What do we have to do with you? That kind of makes you think that there's more than one in there, but it's also singular. So maybe he's speaking for the whole underworld, the whole realm of, of Satan and those who are his henchmen. He's crying out, what do we have to do with you? Well, the truth is you don't have anything to do with him. There's no common ground between the holy and the unholy, between Jesus and demons. And the plea to leave us alone is a plea not to cast him out of this man, to let him stay in control of this man. And Jesus, of course, cannot let that happen. And then he mentions, don't, you know, uh, have you come to destroy us? Now that word doesn't mean to annihilate or to put something out of existence. Uh, what it does mean is to ruin the power and the activity that causes so much misery by that being in the lives of those it influences. And the fear of Christ is coming out in these expressions. They know his power. They know who he is. They know what he can do. And they're afraid of it. Now, this is something that's interesting. Satan 
and the devils know who Jesus is, but human beings often reject who he is. The the enemy, Satan, his emissaries, they know exactly who Jesus is and they fear him. But all too many human beings don't. They believe the truth about his existence, about his holy nature. Uh, James wrote, the devils believe and tremble. So it's not enough to believe in the existence of Jesus or even his divine character. One must believe in the work he accomplished for our salvation in order to be saved. Now, the Lord Jesus demonstrates his authority in this situation by casting out that demon in verse 25. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet. Now, we'll find often that Jesus will not accept this recognition by foul spirits like this. They may know the truth, but they're not going to be allowed to proclaim that truth anywhere. He's not going to be associated with him or let these, these beings uh, be the ones who proclaim the truth about him. So he makes them keep quiet. They can't keep talking in this fashion. And then he rebukes the spirit and casts him out. Be quiet and come out of him. And every single time, that spirit has to obey and he convulsed the person in whom he was. He cried out again like a scream and then he came out of that person. Now we don't hear a lot about this kind of activity today, but that doesn't mean it's not real and it's not present in certain places. I had a missionary friend who told me of some experiences of exorcism in the Philippines as he was a missionary there. I'm sure today that there's much demonic activity in our drug culture. And it's not difficult to see the power of evil forces, even in high places of society and government. And of course, the devil is behind everything that's harmful to humanity in the world. The Lord Jesus protects his own from such activity, yet we still know we'll face temptation by the forces of Satan, and we have to be empowered by God's Spirit to resist them. Now here again we have the response of the people, which again highlights the authority of Jesus, the servant of God. Then they were all amazed. Same word, same concept, so that they question among themselves. Now, you can imagine the buzz that was going on after this took place. And they say, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So again, not only do they recognize his authority in teaching and the way that he taught, he recognizes authority over the most evil realm of the world, Satan's realm itself. Now, they're amazed because by a word, the, the demon is cast out. These folks were not unaware 
of exorcism. It was not unknown to them. Uh, but most of the time, charlatans would be doing this kind of thing, and they would be using incantations and certain rituals and supposed magic, and uh, who knows if the result was ever something like this in the first place. Jesus just had to use a word to achieve his purpose, and his authority was unquestionable as they experienced this exorcism. So the people understood this action as something entirely new, different than they had ever experienced before because Jesus could command the unclean spirits and they had to obey his voice. And of course, it doesn't take long for this kind of thing to get around the neighborhood and the broader region because verse 28 says, immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. So this is going to precede him wherever he goes. It's going to draw people to him. Uh, But the sad thing is, many of these people are fickle. And we'll find that out a little bit later on. So the Lord Jesus began his ministry with an authoritative proclamation. The kingdom of God is at hand. He then demonstrated his authority to God as God's unique servant by calling those disciples to come alongside him for training, uh, to leave their nets behind. Instead of catching fish, they would catch men. He taught in a most powerful way, and he cast out a demon. So a lot of applications can be drawn from this uh, portion of Scripture. First of all, The New Testament Gospels are about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And they unfold for us the story of his coming, his power, his authority. Uh, They tell us about his death, his resurrection, and what it is he did to save us. And this word carries the same authority now as it did then So those who preach it in truth are backed by the authority of Christ. Therefore, we ought to listen to it. And we ought to uh, think about it. And we ought to concentrate on what it means. Then the mention of the kingdom of God that the Lord Jesus was proclaiming raises the question of who's going to be in it. Who's going to participate as the subjects of the kingdom? Only those who repent and believe in the gospel. So have you come to that place in your life where you have turned from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you acknowledged your sinful condition, your inability to do anything about it? Have you realized that Jesus died for you and paid the penalty of your sin that you deserve. He took all your sins upon himself so you could be saved and come into his kingdom. Then we have the aspect of discipleship that Mark focused on. It wasn't teaching at this point. It was fishing for men. Do we exert any time, any patience, any effort in drawing people to Christ? Are we following the Lord in that area? If so, how? Maybe that's something we ought to think about 
We're not called full-time to do that, but certainly as his disciples, we should have a concern in that area. And finally, aren't you glad we don't have to fear being filled with a demon? If you're a Christian today, if you know the Lord, a demon's not going to fill you. He's not going to control you. But of course, we can be influenced by them. Satan will try to tempt us to do wrong in many ways, uh, but we're able to stand against the wiles of the devil as we resist those temptations through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are under the greatest authority in the world who even can command demons, and so we do not have to fall to temptation as we walk close to him. So whose authority do you submit to today? The authority of the unique servant of God or the authority of self? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today for your goodness, for your grace, for all you've done for us. Lord, especially the work of salvation. And we just pray, Lord, that you'll help us to understand that as you have extended to us the invitation, we should respond to it. Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know their relationship to you, help them to understand what Christ did to save them. And Lord, help them to turn from their sin to the Lord Jesus. Lord, those of us who do know you, help us, Lord, to submit to your authority that is in the word of God. Help us, Lord, also to uh, be involved in fishing for men in the location you've placed us through the people that cross our paths. Help us, Lord, to see them as lost souls in need of a Savior. And Lord, do what we can to impart to them the truth of the gospel. And Lord, again, we thank you, thankful that you have power over the unseen world of of demons. We're thankful, Lord, that we uh, will never uh, be filled by a demon. We may be attacked, but we can't be controlled. So let us each day as we face the temptations that come to our life, trust your spirit to protect us and to help us to stand true to your word. Bless us with these thoughts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.